Great. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for being here with us. Um, my name is Pat Gallagher. I'm an associate at Goulston and Stores um, and am a member of the BBA's uh, Real Estate Steering Committee um, and have the great pleasure of uh, welcoming our two panelists to today's event um, titled Mechanics, an Overview of Recording and Land Registration. Um, and we have with us Chris Provost, uh, who is a senior underwriting counsel at Stewart Title Guarantee Company, and Deb Andrews, who is a senior paralegal at Anderson and Krieger. Um, to any younger associates on the call, um, my best advice that I can give you as you are uh, starting your practice is to use uh, underwriting counsel and to use uh, paralegals uh, to the greatest extent that you can. They are some of your best resources. Um, and uh, with that, I uh, will um, share my screen and I will hand it over uh, to Chris. Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm gonna kick us off with the very, I just had my screen up, so bear with me a second. Um, so I'm going to kick us off and uh, start out with the very basics of um, you know what the what the reason is we're here today and um, and that is the the very foundation is what is the purpose of recording documents at all and it's really to put the world on notice that um, who the owners of the property are Massachusetts is a race notice jurisdiction and that means the first to get to record is um, uh, is the first with priority. However, there is a, an exception in Massachusetts where the parties have notice of some intervening um, intervening interests. You might lose your first priority even though you've gotten to record first. Um, so, uh, if for instance, let's say you have a deed that you want to take to record, um, I grant a deed to Deb Andrews. Uh, Deb hangs on to that deed and doesn't take it to record. She is, we still have a binding document. Um, I have already conveyed the, um, the property to Deb. She's in possession of the, uh, she's the owner of the property now, but until she puts that deed on record, she's not gonna be able to get a mortgage or exercise her interest um, to, again, with anyone else. So, uh, one of the things that we'll talk about too is what sorts of documents are typically recorded. And generally, generally we'll see those ownership type documents, deeds and mortgages, assignments of leases and rents, which, is, um, which often support the grant of a mortgage um, where you're assigning beneficial interest to the lender. And then also leases for more than seven years. Those are the documents that are referenced in Mass General Laws, Chapter 183, Section 4. Um, and basically it says what, um, what I've already explained that between the parties, those documents are good, but until they get on record, they're not good against, um, against any third party interests. Um, recording. Documents do require an acknowledgement. Most documents require an acknowledgement to get on record, your deeds, your mortgages, etc. But there are documents that we see on record that don't require um, acknowledgements. And those are your non-title, non mostly non-title documents. They might be authority documents of a certificate of vote that's authorizing someone to grant the mortgage or deed. Also your zoning type documents that pertain to use, your special permits, your variances, um, conservation related documents, even though they're non-title, they pertain to the use of the property and, and might require a recording at the registry of deeds. And then one other, one other important document for recorded land only, can't use exercise these in registered land, um, but is what's called a general laws chapter 183 section 5b affidavit, which is an affidavit in aid of title that might help explain um, some circumstances on title that will be beneficial to that title. So that's in a nutshell, the basics of um, why we're recording. Now I'm gonna pass it on to Deb, who's gonna explain um, 
uh, where the documents are physically recorded and some inf more information about that. Thanks, Chris. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Great, okay. I was the one having some technical difficulty, so thanks for bearing with me. Um, so as a follow-up to what Chris was saying, um, I'm hoping to give uh, just a general helpful overview of the registry systems and how documents are recorded. Then I also wanna give a brief overview of the two types of land registration systems that we have in Massachusetts, um, particular to Massachusetts. One is recorded land and then one is registered land. So one thing I just wanna, we'll start with is the recorded land. Um, Recorded land is sort of based on the buyer beware concept. Um, registry personnel, um, the clerks at the registry will accept or reject a document based on whether it meets fairly minimum recording requirements, not whether a particular document properly relates to a property in question. So it's the buyer's responsibility to check the status of the title, figure out if there are any legal issues that could cloud ownership. And so most of the land in Massachusetts is recorded land. Um, you can always tell, like if you are asked to do a lease or prepare an agreement, and you, if you ever wanna know whether property is recorded or registered land, We'll always know it's recorded land because it references a book and page of a deed or a mortgage or a lease. Um, so that's always a clue to figure out whether it's recorded land. Um, in terms of research for recorded land, um, I don't know how many of you have actually done a field trip to the registry. Um, I think it's a neat place to go, but now so much of it is online that I don't get over there as much as I used to. But in terms of research, um, if a lot of you are in front of your computers and you want to take a minute and go on to Mass Land Records, um, and if you go into that site, it'll bring you up to a map of Massachusetts and things are, oh, good job, Patrick. <laughs> um, you can pick the registry. So for instance, uh, Patrick has up Suffolk registry. And you'll see on the top, you'll see search criteria. So for recorded land, you can do a search um, by last name. Um, if you know the first initial, great. Um, you can do a document search. You can do a property search. So for instance, if someone has asked you to identify um, a deed to in insert a title reference into a notice of lease, um, you can start off by putting in the property. Um, so, you know, five North Lane, and it'll pull up all the documents um, associated with that property. Um, one thing you should always do is when you are trying to find out if there's a document of record is always do a search both ways, run it by the property address, and then run it by the name if you can to always double check yourself. Um, some of the registries, like you'll see to the right of the circles that Patrick has put up, dates available 1973 through um, up and through the current year or day, actually. You can actually go into an advanced search, which is over to the right. And in some registries, reset it. So the year is 1900. You may get behind the 1973 year. If you can't, you can go into the unindexed property search under recorded land and put in a book and page. Um, and these are documents that are not necessarily scanned in and available online yet, but they, uh, or I'm sorry, they, they will pull up. Um, they just won't necessarily be indexed. So I hope that's helpful. Um, when COVID is over, uh, you may have a chance to actually go into one of the registries. Maybe someone will go um, and ask you to pull an old plan or an older document. And the way that the documents are, are um, put together at the registry is they're all in books and pages. Um, so there are all these uh, large books at the registry. You go in, you pull the book, and the document will be um, right in the books, which is fabulous. 
Um, for Middlesex County um, Registry of Deeds, and actually for all the other registries, they have plans, old plans. And some of these books, are, it's really fascinating. They, they date back to the 1800s, so they're all handwritten. Um, and lawyers have the worst handwriting ever. Um, so you should all be used, if you could go into the registry, to actually um, read those old documents. It's kind of neat. Um, and, and, in terms I... of recording documents at the registry, it's fairly simple. Um, if you're ever asked to go in, you just bring a check, you go up to the uh, clerk. Um, they will review the document for the standard conveyancing practices um, requirements, which Chris and I will go over later. They're not going to really review the document for anything else. Um, and you will get the original back after you're done recording. Um, so that's sort of recorded land in a nutshell. The second part of land in Massachusetts is known as registered land. Um, it's definitely a more complex form of land ownership. It's separate from the registry of deeds. Um, and a little bit of history, which I find fascinating, but the registered land dates back to the 1800s and the Torrens Act, um, when Sir Robert Torrens, who was an Australian customs administrator, established a system of recording ownership of ships. It eventually spread over to English-speaking countries. And so today, registered land in Massachusetts is an adjunct of the land court. And so the land court has complete jurisdiction over registered land in Massachusetts. Um, generally speaking, registered land is land in Massachusetts, which at some point in time has been the subject of an ownership or boundary dispute and has gone through the land registration process. Um, I actually have registered land. Um, I'm out in Hopkinton. But I would say, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, I think only 15 to 20% of land in Massachusetts is registered. That Not sounds that. about right. Yeah, guessing. Yeah. Um, so if you um, ever want to know whether you have recorded or registered land, one tip is registered land is always described as being a document number. And it's noted on a certificate of title. So Patrick has up here the Suffolk County Registry. So say you go into recorded land and you can't find my property, say One Hill Crest Drive. It's not coming up under the property search. A lot of people forget that property can be registered. So you go over to the registered land side and you will be able to search small amount of property that's registered land. So always remember to check both sides um, when you're doing the research. Um, just, sorry, I haven't and, talked this much in a long time. And, and Deb, if I can ask- year old son. <laughs> if I can jump in with um, a question, uh, Deb. Um, if, if you're dealing with property that may have been registered, is there a simple way to confirm whether or not it has been deregistered? Um, if you're if you're doing diligence on a property, yes. So what happens there? There are situations where property is registered, and say that there's a piece of land that's going to be developed, and maybe it's going to be subdivided. A lot of people will feel like it's best practice and maybe a little bit easier to pull the property out of the land registration system. And so you will see, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but you'll see an order of notice filed with the land court that it's been pulled out of the land registration system. And then you will see the documents then recorded at the registry of deeds. It Patrick, will be that clear. Your question? The, that will be clear on the encumbrance sheet. The thing to be aware of, and I've seen this, is um, when documents are recorded on the wrong side inadvertently, don't be misled by the wrong recording. Exactly. And there are some situations, I've run into this actually quite frequently, where you can have a piece of property and it's called going both ways. 
meaning that property is recorded and registered land. And so keep in mind that if you have a property that goes both ways, you have to record and file documents on both sides. And the way it works logistically is that registered land documents must be filed first. They are stamped both ways, and then they are you know, sent downstairs to the recorded land side where they are recorded as well. Um, and just to give another um, example of how registered land is different from recorded land. Oh, Deb, before you move on, can I just make a comment on the both recorded at the registry? You can find your deed and your mortgage and whatnot. Um, when you have registered land, everything is noted on what's called a certificate of title. And you have the, it's literally a very large piece of like title in a way. It has the property description on the front. And then when you open it up, it lists out all of the property's encumbrances. Um, so you can see right immediately there's mortgages or liens or tax takings. Um, it really is easier in a way to see what affects the encumbrances that affect registered land. Um, one thing is I do know, and I'm probably dating myself, but when I bought my property, I was given a certificate of title. They don't do that anymore because people used to lose them all the time. So the certificates are kept at the, re the registered section of the land court. And so when you go in to file something, they literally pull out the certificate of title and they note the en encumbrance or the change of ownership. And a lot of times you can't actually see the certificate of title online. Chris, am I correct that there are probably some registries are like three to four years behind in creating the certificates? Yes, they're all over the place. So you kind of have to go with the flow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then another big difference is again, um, when you go to the land court, those clerks at the land court, man, they are tough. They will look at every single document. They will make sure it's signed properly, that the property description is exactly the way it's supposed to be. Um, I mean, they, and I can't tell you the number of times uh, if you have registered land that you've been popped back to correct something and then have to go back and refile it. So, um, you know, when you see registered land, you kind of roll your eyes because you know it's going to be, um, everything has to be perfect. Um, in terms of, Chris, do you want to talk about pre-approvals? Like, there are some documents that need to be pre-approved by the land court before they can be registered. One situation I'm thinking of is uh, when you have property that's been subdivided, the first deed out needs to be pre-approved by the land court. Um, Chris, can you think of anything else? Yes, yes there's the, the last to die. So if you have a probate in your chain or your, your new deed is coming out of a probate, you'll need to have uh, and there are land court guidelines that you would refer to. It tells you everything that you need to compile together and provide it to the uh, land court in advance of closing day. And generally this is the seller's council taking care of this. They provide the documents to the land court along with the executed deed. The land court would stamp it approved. And then um, when it comes the day of closing and you deliver the deed, you're delivering a, an approved deed for recording to the buyer. Um, another one is foreclosure properties. Those go, go, those go through and get pre-approved. Um, and we'll, I think we'll talk, hit on the process of pre-approvals a little bit later. And I did wanna make a point on the, when documents are both ways, if you don't record on the correct side, it's as if your document is not recorded at all. So remember the very first thing we talked about, uh, there are serious consequences to that. So say you were, you're putting on a, uh, a mortgage on a property and then uh, these people go out and get another mortgage and that mortgage is on the wrong side. That mortgage could lose its priority um, against the properly recorded mortgage. So, um, so important to keep that in mind.
Right. I, I was going to add as well to that point. I, I think one of the most common instances of um, having to correct a document that is not properly recorded on both sides is, is for a mortgage uh, discharge. And, and that is um, something that uh, is going to come up in the course of a transaction that, that is really important to be able to deal with and, and recognize what the issue is. Um, and, and so something to be aware of uh, and address well before closing um, so that it's not a problem uh, as you're getting into the closing especially if that mortgage has been assigned three times and two of those assignments are recorded on the, uh, are, are registered on the registered land side. One of those assignments is recorded on the, on the recorded land side. So you don't have a complete chain on, on either side. The, these, and I see it often, often I will say. And um, so that can be very problematic. Know where you're going when it comes time to record. Uh, Deb, back to you. I was concerned that whether people can hear me or not. Is Are we still getting echoes? I nope. can hear you. Oh, perfect. Okay. Um, I think the next thing we just wanted to run through, um, there are a couple last things to say about registered land. Um, registered land will always keep the original documents. You won't get those back. Um, you cannot do confirmatory instruments with registered land. They also don't allow um, also known as. So these are just some of the small nuances of registered land that you may not see in recorded land. Um, if we pop back, um, Patrick, if you wanted to go to that deed um, form. And, and, just and before, before Starting that, Deb, there are just a couple of questions that it might make sense to address now. Sure. Um, so uh, one question, and you may have touched on this, is where are the books uh, prior to the 1890s? Are there, um, are, are those available um, at, at the registries for documents that are pre-1890? Yeah, I mean, my recollection is that it at the Middlesex Registry, and Chris, you can correct me if I'm wrong if you know this, but they're really, really old books in the bowels of the registry. Um, I don't know if that's correct for every registry, but then I also know that some of the oldest ones are available on microfiche. Um, and you can scan through those and get copies. Chris, are you aware of any other? And I don't know how, when those date back to. Yeah, I would suggest contacting the registry because I think you might find a difference from registry to registry to registry. And, um, uh, and the only other uh, thing that I would want to add to that is, and this had, has only once in my 30 plus year career <laughs> come up, um, where the documents were actually on file at the city hall and weren't at the oh. registry um, where it was, it was pre-registry. And they, they were very, very old documents and it was a rail, railroad related issue, but um, you know, I, I really don't expect that people are going that far back uh, as a general rule, unless you're doing, you know, if you're doing family research or, or something like that, you might. Um, great, um, and, and just uh, bears reminding here, every registry is its own uh, fiefdom. <laughs> and so um, know that, uh, you know, as far as from their websites to uh, their in-person practices, they're, they're going to vary from, uh, you know, registry district to registry district. So do your homework on that. Um, another question, uh, and, and this one um, we might have to give some thought to, um, and, and get back to it. If record title of a property is in party A, who is deceased, probate records indicate that the decedent's heirs B and C have transferred the decedent's real property among themselves uh, via settlement agreement uh, such that C is the sole owner. What is the legal effect when the transfer agreement has never been recorded at the registry of deeds? So when I, I assume when that settlement agreement 
um, among B and C transferring the party solely to C, if that settlement agreement is not recorded, what is the effect? Well, um, I think in that case, uh, I would wanna see all of the documents before I make a determination. Um, and I, and this, this I think is an important point that um, you might have a set of facts and then some nuance in the document is going to change the outcome. So I, you know, I think you really have to evaluate that on a case-by-case -case basis. If the settlement agreement is, um, is uh, filed with the probate file, it's still part of the public record, so then I think you'd be okay. But, um, and then, you know, maybe you'd be okay with seeing the settlement agreement off record and um, recording an affidavit. I probably wouldn't be okay with that, but depends on the circumstances, of course. And, um, you know, otherwise you might just want to have everybody sign off in record title and that would button it up. Right. And, and, and it's important on these questions to work with your underwriter and, and um, you know, all of the title insurance companies that uh, you're likely to come across have fantastic underwriters um, who are, you know, hopefully going to help and work and, and dig into those historical issues. And, um, you know, particularly on some of the harder questions, if, if you have questions relating to probate or you, you might have questions relating uh, to fractional shares uh, or air rights or things that are, are, are hard to, um, you know, really put a finger on, um, you know, you, you want to really work with uh, your title underwriter on, um, you know, uh, where, where there are those difficult questions on trying to come to the best um, solution for how to deal with them. Um, one final question for now, and then we'll keep moving to this deed. Um, and this, I think, was touched on a bit. What, uh, Deb, what do you mean by recorded on both sides? And I think it might be helpful to illustrate that you know, if, if you're going into a registry of deeds in person, um, there are two physical sides of the registries mm -hmm. that you, know, you, you can walk in and, and go to the counters on the right side, and, and that is the land court side, and, and the counters on the left side, and that is the registry side. Um, so that, that is, um, you know, I think where that term comes from, but for, for property that is recorded um, or that is both registered and also recorded. Um, so I think for, uh, if there are no further questions for now, we'll keep moving um, and hopefully everyone can see uh, this, this example deed that is up. Um, if, if uh, go ahead, Tim, thanks. So on the deed, Chris and I just wanted to, and we may tag team this a little bit, Chris, jump in if you want. Um, we tried to do a very simple document and then outline some of the standard provisions that you will see incorporated into a document that um, will be necessary to record it at the, the registry. And by registry, I mean registry of deeds and registry district of the land court. Um, so one of the first things that the registry will tell you is that you need to put a margin, two inch margin at the top of each document going to the registry. Um, they need um, space to put their information. Um, and the other thing that they will pop it back all the time if you don't have the property address in the margin. Um, and again, you know, right now a lot of documents are e-filed. Um, through Simplify or whatever um, program that you are using, and they will pop them back if the, the stuff is not included. Um, so for a grant tour, uh, we've got COVID 2020 LLC. Um, you always have to define the entity. So in this case, an LLC, you should list uh, the state of incorporation, whether it be a Massachusetts LLC, a Delaware LLC. Um, if because of the new homestead laws, it's in a, this is a little embarrassing when you have to ask your client this, but say I was gonna convey property to Chris, I would have to identify myself as an unmarried woman or a married woman, and then I would need to get my spouse to release the right of homestead. So you just have to think about your grantor when you are drafting a deed in particular. Um, you must always have the grantor's address. Um, 
we have here the consideration that needs to be listed out. Um, keep in mind, I don't know how many of you know this, but the deed stamps uh, that are payable to the Registry of Deeds are $4.56 per thousand of the purchase price, except for, is it Dukes County, which is, Chris, what is it, five something now? And I don't know the, I don't it's know the It's a little rate. bit higher. But the general rule is 456 per thousand of the of the and it is all on the website on the Dukes. So if you're recording um, out in Dukes, you want to check the website. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice, it's a uh, nice chunk that goes to the registry. Yes. Um, keep in mind that a lot of times if, if a transaction or a document is nominal consideration. Uh, 10, $100 or less, or even you just put for consideration of a dollar, no deed stamps are due. So you just have to make sure that can, that statement is included in the, in the deed down below. Um, for the grantee, in this case, we have end of COVID 2021, a mass limited liability company. Um, you should make sure that you include a proper address, um, whether it be a business address, because um, for the most part, copies of these deeds are sent to the municipalities where the grantee is paying real estate taxes. And so that's where the tax bills will be sent. So that is important that you make sure you have the correct address for the grantee. Um, that's actually, if I can jump in. Yeah. Um, the uh, address in the margin and the grantee address, those are actually governed by statute, although the statute does provide that, you know, the failure to include these does not affect the validity of the document uh, that is statutory driven. Um, and also with regard to the names, I can't stress this enough, uh, pull up the Secretary of State website or get a certificate of good standing and make sure your name matches precisely what is um, on the certificate uh, or filed with the registry of deeds. A deed to an entity that doesn't exist, um, if the deed grant was to end of 2021 instead of end of COVID 2021 and uh, end of 2021 did not exist, you haven't conveyed anything. There's nothing vested in your grantee, even though the intended party was end of COVID 2021. Um, that uh, that grant would fail. And if you're putting a mortgage on right after, the grant of the mortgage would fail. So you've got to get the correct vesting. Um, one other issue along those lines is, uh, and it's important, so in, it's important to state the home state of, in, of incorporation or, um, or of existence is uh, there could be a COVID 2020 LLC in Delaware. And if you didn't recite this uh, in your grantee clause, especially in the grantor clauses following from there, uh, that could be, it could be problematic because you don't know which COVID 2020 um, LLC you're that, is, uh, that this is talking about. And you might be able to draw a link from the address, but that's not, uh, not controlling as far as title goes. So important to note that and if you get it to the wrong entity um, and say there's a there's a Delaware LLC but no filing in Massachusetts, you can't file a new entity with that name in Massachusetts to make the link. It's a completely separate entity and it's not going to vest title. Does that make sense? Yeah. And just to piggyback on what Chris said a little bit, it's very, very easy to go online to the Massachusetts Secretary of State's office, go to the corporate division and just plug in a name of the company. And this helps a couple different layers. One is if you are establishing an LLC for a client, you wanna make sure that that name is already not already taken or there isn't an LLC that's named very similarly to the one that you are going to establish. Um, and you can reserve a name there. But the, the second thing um, with regards to that is when you are putting a deed and you're listing out a grantee, you can go onto the Mass Secretary of State's website and you may see that it's incorporated, but it is very important to pull up the annual reports and make sure that they are in good standing. Um, you can pull it right up, you can see all filings and you just have to make sure that they have filed 
um, for the current year that you are conveying the property. That's important. Uh, so moving on, because I know we're getting towards the end. Um, the property description uh, that you'll see starting off with that certain parcel of land, um, it's best practice to um, reference uh, an existing plan of record or an existing meets and bounds of record from the prior deed. Um, in this case, it, you should be clued in immediately that this is registered land because it says, the, the reference is the land registration office. Um, it also, yeah, does it give, oh, and it'll give a uh, registration book and page down below and a document number. Um, we typically, and Chris, you may want to speak to this more, we typically include just a very short provision that says said premises are conveyed subject to and together with, um, and that will pick up on everything in the, in the record title. Um, because it doesn't need to be recited in the deed to make it effective. And that's one of the reasons why you should always do a, a full title examination. Chris, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that anymore. Correct. Um, if, you're if the um, property is subject to easements or has the benefit of an easement, unless those uh, instruments are otherwise released, those rights go with the property. Um, and as far as appurtenances go, uh, for the benefit of your locus, that's driven by statute under General Laws one, uh, Chapter 183, Section 15. Um, and then the subject to is just based on common law. Uh, you're always going to be subject to whatever is back in the record title. And so you might go three deeds back in your chain and you'll see subject to this easement and that easement, but you'll see those have not been carried forward in the current deeds property is still subject to those unless they're formally released. Um, in this case, the grantor is an LLC. So we have the standard provision, um, if it is not, that it's this conveyance does not constitute a sale or substantially all of the assets of the grantor. Um, otherwise, uh, you would need a um, corporate excise tax waiver uh, I haven't gotten one of those in a long time. I do know they do take some time. Um, Chris, if you want to elaborate on that at all. I'm not sure. sure. Um, so back in uh, January of 2009, the definition of corporation was expanded uh, prior to 2009. And you were only dealing with this language if the entity were a straight corporation. Now they've expanded it to basically include every type of entity. So, um, and mostly what we're seeing on record are LLCs, but there can be LLPs or LPs also um, still subject to the language. And um, as long as it does not constitute a sale of, of all or substantially all the assets of the grantor or the transaction is in the normal course of business of the grantor uh, or that grantor is not treated as a corporation for federal income tax purposes, then you can make those statements. And that's all represented. There is a title standard, uh, Real, uh, Real Estate Bar Association of Massachusetts, REBA, title standard 17 in the comment section gives you that lays out the language and you can refer to that when you're dealing with these entities and uh, ex, uh, corporate excise tax. Um, in addition to, you know, I've got an LLC listed here as the grantor, um, but um, a lot of times, say, if it's from a trust, you have to be very careful that you know who, are, who is signing on behalf of the trust. And so a lot of times with the document, like a deed, you will see a recitation. I didn't include it in this one, Patrick, but um, you'll see a recitation, a trustee certificate within the deed saying the trust is in full force and effect, it hasn't been amended except of record, it hasn't been terminated, and that the undersigned are the existing trustees of the trust. Um, so you just have to make sure you have the authority. Um, and then I think it actually, if you go back up, Patrick, once more, um, regarding the other provision, oh, we've already that. talked about the, the excise stamps. Um, yes, yeah. Uh, can I just scooch in for a second? 
So regarding the excise tax stamps, the the consideration in this deed is two million. So yes. the, this statement would not apply in this deed, but as Deb mentioned before, it's for your less than one hundred dollar deeds. Um, and then regarding trusts, it's another um, another really can of worms. So work closely with your um, underwriters on those types of transactions. You have to have a trustee of record giving a certificate. There are certificates that can be relied on based on statu statutory reliance is the general laws 183 section 35 certificate. And there's also a certificate under the new uniform trust code in Massachusetts. So uh, those can be fairly complex. And then is it, what are your types of trusts that may, and they, that can make a difference, your nominee trust, your revocable trust, your living trust. Um, so uh, very important, work closely with your underwriter on those things. Um, and then just in terms of execution, uh, again, I think we've touched on this a little bit, um, but you definitely want to define um, the grantor and you have to make sure it's signed by the appropriate people who are who are duly authorized um, and so a lot of times you will need to get um, a vote of the corporation you will need to get a good standing certificate listing out who the managers are so you have to be very careful who is signing on behalf of the grantor um, and use a proper yeah, note and there are title standards governing that. And again, reach out to your underwriter uh, as well. If there's any question on authority, uh, that can be a source of claims for us. So, um, and you know, some of it for the most part is pretty straightforward, but if you're not handling that type of transaction all the time, you, you could miss something. So um, again, work with your, uh, with your underwriters. And do you want to hit the acknowledgement step? Um, well, they, there are some individual acknowledgement forms. Um, there are individual ones, and then there are ones that are particular to when uh, a corporation is signing. Um, so I, I'm, I'm assuming that, I mean, we could, we could generate some samples as well, um, but you just have to make sure that uh, you're using the proper uh, notary. Um, and, form and, for the document. and we'll also at the end of this PowerPoint is a slide with some additional resources and, and um, important statutory references and, and this PowerPoint um, will go out to to all the registered participants at the end. Um, okay, so there is a statutory form uh, under General Laws 222 Section 15. And there's a statutory form jurat and statutory form acknowledgement there and there's also there's another statutory form in the appendix to General Laws 183, which is the older form, 222.15 is the new form. And uh, you cannot go wrong using the statutory form. So I would refer everyone to cut and paste that off of mass.gov and use that form. <laughs> and um, I guess we can hit quickly on uh, oh, acknowledgements versus jurats. Make sure you're not attaching a jurat to a deed um, without a, sometimes there is jurat language added to an acknowledgement, but the acknowledgement is that, you know, identifying the signer and that signing the document is their free and voluntary act or free act and deed or voluntary act for the stated purposes. That is your acknowledgement. If you're swearing that the above is true, that is your jurat. And um, I think uh, there's been, after the home, passage of the Homestead Statute, there's been, uh, I don't know, a movement to add jurat language to an acknowledgement. And then that has somehow translated into jurats being attached instead of acknowledgements. And your deed is not valid if you don't have a proper uh, acknowledgement or your mortgage is, is invalid if you don't have a proper acknowledgement. Uh, that can be challenged in bankruptcy court and undone. So very important to have that. There is a 10-year curative statute, but a lot can happen in that 10 years. So um, be sure you have the right one. And then two seconds, just on foreign 
um, acknowledgements if somebody's not um, notarizing, having their document um, physically uh, or in-person notarized in Massachusetts, you have out of state and you have um, out of the country acknowledgements. And there are various forms of apostille, go to the consulate and get the the US consulate and have your documents executed there. Um, or you need these other apostille or um, a general laws 183 section 33 certificate. Um, my recommendation is always go to the consulate. 90% uh, of the time when these apostilles or certificates come back, they're not done right. So save the headache and have your people go to the consulate if they're not executing documents in the US. And, and this is another practice point and I think we'll segue well into our last topic um, that uh, particularly um, you know, right now when it, you, you could be the victim of an unexpected shutdown, um, when, when you have a signer in another country, um, it, it's in your best interest to get those documents signed, authorized, and correctly have the apostille attached well in advance. Um, I had a situation uh, in the spring um, where a signer um, was uh, in, in the Bahamas um, there was a shutdown, a, a very strict stay-at-home order such that the consulate was not even open except for emergency business, um, and the closing uh, had to be pushed off because of that. Um, so something to, to really um, make sure ahead of time that, that those are lined up and, and um, ready to go. And, and so on to our favorite topic of COVID in the last uh, few minutes that we have today. Um, but if anyone has any questions, please do drop those into the Q&A and we'll try to get to those as well. Um, so COVID related changes um, and uh, Deb may want to add to these, but I wanted to hit on the, um, there is a remote ink notarization acknowledgement statute. We can rely it's chapter 71 of the acts of 2020. And that's that statute sunsets three days after the state of emergency ends. But in this, in this current time, you can do uh, an acknowledgement remotely, take an acknowledgement remotely, as long as all the parties are located in Massachusetts. Um, and you have to have two video conferences. You have to be able to see the people signing um, and monitor who's in the room. And there's, there's, uh, there are, I think, 30, maybe 35 other requirements. I'm exaggerating. It's, it's very complicated to comply with all of the requirements to get a document notarized for purposes of recording at the Registry of Deeds. There might make sense to do a will or something else. Uh, I think it's a little bit easier to, to um, acknowledge those things under this statute, but when it comes to recordable documents, very difficult to follow, but it's, it can be done. Um, and you have to save the, you have to make a recording of it and save that for a period of seven years. So, um, so something to think about, it's out there just in case you uh, wanna take advantage of it. Another issue is gap coverage, and this is a title insurance um, related issue. So in Massachusetts, we're a title theory state, you go to record, um, you run the title up until, your re, um, up until the moment of recording, put your documents on record, and that's when the owner is officially the owner um, of title. Unlike some other states where they close in escrow and their documents aren't recorded for 20 days, uh, Massachusetts is title theory. That being said, we have some issues, and I think, as far as I know, the only one right now is the Middlesex South Reg, uh, registered land department where you have to drop the documents off and there could be a day, two or three day delay in those documents actually getting to record. So in the meantime, you wanna make payoffs and things and, um, and have just because of that recording delay that's uh, nobody's fault really, we as a title and I think every title insurer um, will allow it gap coverage for those things. So even though you're not technically on record, you can still disperse proceeds of that transaction. So that's gap coverage. If you have questions, underwriters have certain requirements. So if you think you're going to be closing under gap or dispersing before your documents are on record, check with your underwriter before you do so. Um, 
and then uh, Deb, did you want to hit the last two points or want me to take those? Um, when you say virtual recorder's office, I'm actually not certain what you what you mean by that. Okay, so, um, and this is uh, information from mass.gov. I have not logged into the virtual recorder's office, uh, but my understanding is that this is for Landcorp you can contact the virtual recorder and either ask them questions or run documents by them, get a preview to make sure that your documents are, are okay to go on record, um, and then they can ultimately get it filed. So it's my understanding is, is if you were walking up to the counter, you can log into the virtual recorder's office and uh, speak with a person there. There are limited hours. And uh, if somebody does this, I'd love to hear how it works out because I've, I've not done it. I don't, I don't record documents in my current position, but. Um, well, that's kind of cool. Then, I didn't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, uh, September 30th of 2020, Landcourt issued a memo, a memo that updated the procedures for processing documents. So if you have one of those transactions where you need documents uh, pre-approved, your foreclosures or your last to die probates, um, there's a method to deal with that and they prioritize things and have you, uh, so you would send an email to the land court and explaining your situation, they assign it a priority, you get the documents to them and then they, it proceeds from there. Um, so, and then, oh, excellent. And so here's a list of the statutes that we talked about and um, some of the resources that are online, super helpful. I love the Google. Um, there's just a lot of information out there. It's, sometimes it's just hard to find or, um, or we don't have time to, <laughs> to spend a lot, of, a lot of time looking at it. But um, these are very important things, land court guidelines. If you're recording in land court, check the guidelines for a topic that might apply to your transaction. It talks about trusts. There's uh, 90 of them maybe. Um, trusts and documents that are required to support trusts and the, the uh, guideline 14 is the one that talks about probate um, requirements in the last to die. And if you're not the last to deceased at all in your chain of title. And then Land court memos is separate um, from the guidelines, but also very important. The land court memos is where you'll find that 930-2020 memo. Um, so you kind of have to uh, look at both of those pages. Um, um, so I see, I see that we're at time and just wanted to see uh, Chris and Deb, if you have any final thoughts. Um, I think we'll wrap up with that. Thank you very much for, um, for your joining us today, everyone. And um, we can hit questions. And if people need to sign off, that's fine. Great. Um, well, yeah. uh, Deb and Chris, thanks so much for, for being on the panel here. And thank you to all the participants again. Um, and and uh, take care and have a great weekend, folks. Thank you. Bye, all.